All right, so last week, uh, Jeannie invited me to listen to a podcast episode. She'd heard it. She thought it might resonate with me as well. And once I took a listen, I understood why. The, pa the podcast was hosted by Brene Brown. And on this particular episode, she was speaking with Priya Parker, who's the author of a best-selling book called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet, and Why It Matters. Now, Priya is a group facilitator. She often works in the area of conflict resolution. And as her book title names, she's known for helping folks think through kind of like collective identities and how those can be enriched by being thoughtful about how we meet and gather. And in this particular podcast episode, Brene had invited Priya to come on and talk about the ways that we might think about gathering after the pandemic and the various issues that are gonna come up as we do so. So Priya was clear that this whole return to more in-person life is complicated stuff. There's a lot to work through. We're in what Priya called a moment of deep transition. Brene calls these kinds of seasons when things are like being really shifted in a major way. Maybe you're taking a big move or you're establishing yourself in a new city or you're trying a whole new way of organizing your company, whatever it is. Uh, she calls those seasons of transition the bounce. So the bounce is a time of change when there's a lot of work to do to figure out kind of like how life works now. There's lots of conversations to be had about what comes next. And Priya shared some of her concerns about this kind of bounce time like this. I would say that at the deepest level, she says, I'm concerned about people, organizations, teams, default racing back to assuming they're, they're trying to race back to something without pausing and asking, what have we learned during this time about our work, about how we work, about at the core of it, what is it we do and what is needed right now? What have we learned about things like access and equity in this year of reckoning? And she says, I'm not worried about the conversations people are having to figure out how we do this. I'm worrying about people skipping those conversations and just focusing on the logistics. Now I start sharing this insight from Priya Parker because as Joanna mentioned, last week we did the thing that she named would be really difficult. That's why Jeannie, I think, felt like the episode would resonate with us, right? We're doing this very thing that she was there to discuss. We've begun gathering in person again. We've had our first experiment in gathering on a Sunday in our bounce. And, and that has come after weeks of making space for conversation around all of this that I think we've been benefiting from. And what both the women in the podcast name and I think our own experience is, is beginning to show um, that these conversations are actually vital because while there may be a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about beginning to gather in person again, there is also potential for anxiety, even conflict. Jeannie and I have witnessed this in some of our dialogue with folks over the last month or so. There, there are some in our community who frankly are kind of ready to be done with all this distancing and masking and feeling like the safety stuff that we are, you know, have put forward is probably overkill. 
and especially since so many in our community are, are fully vaccinated. But there are others who feel really grateful we're taking all the precautions we are right now. Perhaps they're immunocompromised. They haven't been able to get the vaccine for health reasons, or there are concerns that it may not be as effective for them. Or maybe they're parents of kids under 12 who aren't even eligible for the vaccine right now. Or maybe they are vaccinated, but they're anxious still about being in a larger group of people and what that will mean. So how do we hold the tension of these things? How do we as Haven think about how we gather again and why it matters? Thus far, a lot of what we've been talking about has to do with science, public health recommendations. Last week, the gathering we had was implementing a pretty stringent set of protocols that were originally crafted when we were in the height of the pandemic, like before there were vaccines online, before there was changing guidance from the CDC. And as the situation evolves, as our, our case counts go down, as more vaccines are available and our state begins to more actively reopen, which you know is happening, in some ways it makes things easier. It feels like there are more opportunities to relax. Like we can have you know, a couple of our friends here in the same room together that don't live together. That's awesome. In other ways, it also makes things more complicated when we try to figure out how we all gather. Even amongst public health experts, there were different opinions about how we all should be navigating this partially vaccinated world. There are different opinions on what the bounce should look like. And as a pastor, as I've been thinking through these issues, one of the layers of thought that I've been having is how we think about these questions, not simply scientifically or sociologically, but also theologically. As a spiritual community, how does our spiritual orientation come to bear on how we think through some of these challenging issues regarding how we gather? Does our Jesus-centered tradition actually have anything to say about this? Well, might not surprise you to find out that I think it actually does. I think that even though our sacred texts and the traditions that arise from them came millennia before conversations about Zoom services or vaccines, there are relevant ethics explored there that can bring wisdom and spiritual insight to how we might think about moving forward. And an example of this that's been coming to mind a lot for me recently is found in a kind of obscure place. It's found in this letter to a church in Rome written by one of the early church leaders, the Apostle Paul, as a group there dealt with their own set of thorny challenges that the community in Rome was, was trying to navigate in their time of bounce, you could say. No doubt the context and the issues they were struggling with are very different than our own, but I do think taking a look at what issues made gathering and connection challenging for folks in their day could have some wisdom for us as well. So as we continue this transition together, I just wanted to take some time this morning to reflect on a scenario uh, from the early church and think about how it might speak into our own situations as we move forward. 
So before we look at this letter to this particular church in Rome, I'm going to give us some context on, on what was going on there. And as I do, I want to give full acknowledgement to my friend, um, an, another pastor, Ken Wilson in Ann Arbor, who has written a whole book that talks about this particular conflict in the church in Rome and how understanding it might help churches in our day deal with their own controversies. So props to Ken. Love him. Um, so the church in Rome that Paul was writing to was having some challenges with group unity because essentially they had a couple of segments of the group who had very different perspectives and practices when it came to the way they were living and practicing their faith. Much of this was cultural. It reflected different groups coming together, trying to build diverse community, something we are always trying to grow here in here at Haven. So in this case, there were two particular groups that were having a hard time navigating a cultural difference together. Those Christians in the community primarily that came from a Jewish background or, or were at least more influenced in their faith by the practice of Judaism. And then those who were not, those who had come uh, to become followers of Jesus from a Gentile background were more influenced by the practices of Rome. So there are a number of ways that those different cultures um, between the Jewish and Gentile Jesus followers created challenges. But we're just gonna look at one this morning that Paul was addressing in this letter. And it was the challenge of whether or not it was appropriate for Jesus followers in Rome to eat meat. So what was the problem with eating meat? I mean, we live in a place where some people are vegetarians, some are vegan, some are gluten-free. We seem to be able to make it work just fine, right? What's the big deal? Well, for the people Paul is talking about, these early Christians living in Rome in the first century, this was a big deal. Choosing to eat meat was about more than just a dietary preference. For them, that choice was about how do you think about potentially participating in idolatry? <clears throat> you see, generally in Rome in that period, the meat was butchered in pagan temples as part of a pagan religious ritual. So understandably for some, particularly those from a Jewish background, to consume that meat could be seen as actively participating in the worship of idols. The meat had actually been sacrificed unto Roman gods. So some Roman Christians felt sincerely that to eat the meat in Rome violated the first commandment. <clears throat> in addition, the meat there wasn't kosher. It generally had not been properly drained of its blood, which for many centuries was a really important thing to do if you were gonna eat meat as a good God-fearing Jew. So for those who had spent their entire lives learning and embodying worship of God in these concrete ways, avoiding idol worship, avoiding meat that was not properly drained of the blood, it was natural to believe that faithfulness to Jesus would include these kind of practices. But not everyone in the church felt that way. For some, particularly those who had Gentile backgrounds, the fact that the meat was sacrificed in a pagan temple didn't really seem problematic. Those followers of Jesus might have said, you know what, I'm just eating it. I'm not actively worshiping anyone other than Jesus. I'm not going to be concerned with where my meat has been or what somebody has done to it that's not me. And they didn't have the same cultural practices regarding kosher meat. So, you know, a lot of them could care less about the blood. 
for them, the eating of it wasn't relevant to their faith in Jesus one way or the other. So what does that have to do with church? Well, the challenge was that in the early church, eating together was kind of the core part of their weekly gathering. Churches in that day met on Sunday evenings in someone's home. They worshiped together. They celebrated communion. They heard some teachings about Jesus or they read pastoral letters like, like the letter to the church in Rome. And then a central important piece of the gathering was that they ate together. So what was the host of the gathering to do? Do you serve meat at the communal meal or not? The difference between those who were deeply offended by the meat and those who thought it really wasn't a big deal would be kind of starkly in your face every time the group tried to gather and sit down together at a meal. Some might feel like they couldn't attend if meat was on the menu. It was a significant problem. So how did Paul deal with it? Well, we're going to go ahead and look at what Paul shares in his letter to this church in Rome beginning with chapter 14, verse 1. Now, I'll just say I've trimmed the passage a bit because it's, it's kind of long, but we'll get the gist of it looking at what he's saying throughout chapter 14 and into 15. So you can read along with me. All right. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is in, unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not buy your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that would cause your brother or sister to fall. Skipping ahead a bit. 
May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Okay, that's it for now. Oh, I love them. Find my notes again. Okay, so in this passage, what is Paul saying to this community in the midst of their tension over this meat eating issue? I'm just going to highlight two things this morning that I think might be useful for us to keep in mind too. The first is that I see him emphasizing acceptance over agreement. Acceptance over agreement. This passage begins and ends with a call to accept one another. It's not a call to convince. It's not a call to come to the same place. It's not a call to separate either. It's a call to accept one another, even in the midst of disagreement. This is a profound word to a community in conflict. Because when you think about it, it is so rarely actually experienced. Even for communities like ours. I mean, we're in Berkeley, in the Bay Area, an area that has a reputation for tolerance. But what Paul is calling the community to, I would argue, goes beyond that. He is acknowledging that the issues at hand are debatable. In our translation, he calls them disputable matters. But rather than let these disputes become a place where the community feels like they have to separate or one group ends up overpowering another, Paul calls them to mutual acceptance, using the divine and their acceptance of all of us as demonstrated by Jesus as the example. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God, he says. Now, I do want to highlight an important way in which Paul's issue is certainly different than our own if we're talking about masks and distancing. Okay, in Ken's book, he takes pains to demonstrate that the issues Paul is addressing here in this part of Romans, this like meat eating being one of them, is a first order moral concern for their community. This isn't just about health. For folks in their community, this is about like someone's standing before God. Likely none of us think our neighbor is like offending the divine simply by wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. So if Paul is calling a community to mutual acceptance, even when they feel that the stakes are faithfulness to God, how much more should we be able to practice this kind of mutual acceptance? So what does the mutual acceptance look like? For Paul, it means that rather than siding with one group against another, Paul is calling each party to take responsibility for their reaction to others. And Paul names the two groups he's speaking to. Now, personally, I don't, I don't think his names are the wisest. In what probably felt pretty galling to the more conservative folks in the community, folks who abstained from meat, he called them weak in faith essentially because their consciences weren't strong enough to handle eating meat as he saw it. And those who felt fine eating the meat, probably mostly Gentiles, these he called the strong. 
Now, many scholars note how, in general, these categories actually bear a lot of resemblance to our contemporary categories of conservative and liberal. The more scrupulous groups on an issue, the more conservative here are called the weak in faith, while the strong, one, the strong correspond more to our contemporary liberals often. But I'm going to name that, um, you know, because of the politicization of everything COVID for much of the pandemic, um, these terms like conservative and liberal, I would say have really broken down when it comes to how we think about COVID precautions. Across the country, those of us who might consider ourselves politically more progressive have actually been the most conservative when it comes to COVID precautions. So how these things would, you know, these words of Paul might map on a particular debate issue we're dealing with today, I think really depends on the issue. Does that make sense? So for us, I'm gonna refrain from using those terms, conservative and liberal for the rest of the conversation because I just think it's confusing. But I'm gonna invite you to just keep that in mind. And perhaps we might think of the groups um, that we're thinking of today as maybe like more concerned and less concerned. Now, personally, despite the loaded terms Paul is using, I don't think Paul is trying to call the more concerned group what he terms the weak group uh, inferior. Even if he doesn't personally agree with this group, and it becomes clear he does not, uh, he understands their point of view. He respects that they come to it from a sincere place of seriously trying to honor Jesus. And Paul seems to see that as a worthy stance that must be honored. And Paul goes on to tell each group the problem that he sees with how they're engaging in this conflict. So in 14.3, he puts it like this. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So to the weak, to those who are more concerned, perhaps more scrupulous on an issue, Paul says, don't judge your neighbors. Don't be so focused on whether others are doing something right or wrong. Many of us have had to leave churches or other communities because we were on the receiving end of that kind of moral judgment. So we know it's still an issue, right? We know how, how dangerous this can be. And Paul is saying, stop to those who are, are kind of engaging in that kind of moral judgment. But Paul doesn't stop with critiquing those folks, the weak. He's challenging what he calls the strong in faith too. To the strong, the less concerned we might say about an issue, he challenges them to not look at the weak, at the more concerned with contempt, to not look down on them. He sees how those less concerned folks tend to roll their eyes at their more scrupulous brothers and sisters, perhaps dismiss them as being unenlightened, old fashioned. In our day, we can hear talk about how the coastal elites look down on middle America. And while I'd argue that that whole perception is overblown, in a sense, it does land because there's some element of truth to it. But Paul here won't have it. He himself falls in this strong camp. He calls others in it, but he calls others in it to something different, something challenging. He points out that treating their brothers and sisters with contempt is also a form of judgment. 
just as harmful as the judgment of their more scrupulous siblings. And he calls them to lay it down. So as a community that seeks to be safe and diverse and Jesus-centered, I think this is an important ethic to keep in mind in all kinds of areas. We don't all share the same experiences or expectations, and that's a good thing. But it also means we have to be careful not to impose our own experiences or expectations on others. So when it comes to COVID protocols, for example, though folks in other areas in, that we may find ourselves in might shame people for taking their mask off or for keeping it on, we don't wanna be a part of that kind of social pressure. We wanna be sensitive to where others might be coming from, particularly those who see things differently than we do. Looking with curiosity and care rather than annoyance or contempt. That might even mean that we all accept what Priya Parker calls micro moments of rejection that are sure to come in the weeks and months to come. She describes that this way. We're all gonna experience micro moments of perceived rejection over the next many months. And when I say a micro moment, she says, I mean, I say the invitation is perfect. And then you walk into the room and someone reaches out their hand and someone leans their body back. That's what I mean by a micro moment of rejection where somebody walks over and somebody else moves away. We don't fully know how to do this. And it's gonna be really clunky. And I think part of naming that as a leader is to depersonalize some of that perceived rejection to allow the stumbling and fumbling around. I couldn't agree more with what Priya has to say. I found that really helpful to have named. We might feel a twinge of rejection. We're definitely gonna feel some social awkwardness but choosing to accept one another means that's okay. We accept the awkwardness of learning each other's needs and the process of those changing over time as we all get more comfortable. We don't take it personally. We don't blame others. We simply own together. We're gonna fumble through this. We're gonna find our way in relationship with each other. Those micro moments are gonna happen probably in all kinds of contexts we find ourselves in in the coming moments. But what if at Haven, we could feel a sense of safety in them together? We can laugh at them together, knowing it's okay to be awkward right now. We can handle it. The other thing I see Paul doing here in this letter that I think is relevant for us is this. He prioritizes inclusion and access. He prioritizes inclusion and access. Paul makes it clear. He personally thinks it's totally fine to eat the meat. But for the community, his emphasis is on how can the most number of people be included? How can we eliminate obstacles so no one's excluded who wants to be there? Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister, he says. And clearly when it comes to this, he sees serving meat as an obstacle to community. Because ultimately, if some folks in the community need there to not be meat in order for them to feel like in good conscience they can participate, then when they're in that setting, the group should just avoid eating the meat. Exercising the freedom to eat it is not as important as everyone feeling like they can be a part of the group. Group care and belonging 
matter more than personal freedom here. You hear me? Group care and belonging matter more than personal freedom. I wonder if when Paul was making that point, he was thinking about the words of Jesus himself. Words like those that were related in Matthew 18. And this is that other passage if you want to share it on the screen, April. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child, had him stand among them and said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn around and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the open sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. It is necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the person through whom they come. All right, I'm just gonna say up front, I do not believe Jesus is a fan of drowning people in the sea. He was a master of hyperbole, okay? The point is that Jesus clearly cared about making access, about all who had been excluded becoming included, particularly those who'd been on the margins, often because of low social status, age, illness, disability. In the same way, we wanna be thoughtful about how we make space for folks who might have particular access needs and prioritize practices that are gonna increase access over practices that increase personal comfort. So meeting outside, not gonna lie, it has its challenges. Logistically, it is a bit harder to set up a band. Last weekend, we had good weather, but we all know that's unpredictable. Inside uh, is a lot more comfortable in lots of ways. Still, for this season, if it means that our space is more accessible to those who are medically more vulnerable or to the kids who can't be vaccinated yet, I am happy to keep setting up outside and meeting there as long as we need to until we're confident that inside can be an accessible space too. Recently, some folks in our community read Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice by Leah Lakshmi Peepsna Samarisinha, and I probably butchered her name. Um, and it was a great book and I recommend it. In it, this author talks a lot about access and about putting access needs of those in the disability community front and center rather than use it, you know, just looking at them as an afterthought. Now, Leah is a performance artist, so much of her work deals with actually making performance venues accessible. So in a discussion on that issue, she shared some words that I found particularly relevant for us. She says, I am all in favor of live streaming as being a way to make performance accessible to folks who are unable to make it to the show because of money, sickness, fatigue, et cetera. But live streaming is not an okay fix for an inaccessible venue. Sick, disabled, deaf, and crazy folks would like to be part of the community gathering to witness performance too. 
How much more is that true of the kinds of gatherings we're trying to hold on Sundays? Yes, we want to uh, create the virtual option for those for whom that, that is gonna serve on any given week. But we also wanna make sure that we're not simply offering that as a way to say, okay, there is an option and not acknowledge that, that we need to have accessible spaces in person too, right? So how do we allow this experience that all of us have gone through of forced isolation, of being told we could not participate in things that we might long for um, affect how we think about access in general? Do we let ourselves be shaped by that in ways that say, you know, it's not okay with us for anyone to feel that they can't be connected. So that whatever we do next, whatever we create together next should become more accessible than whatever we did before. Amen? Now, to be clear, I don't think there are simple, clear, straightforward answers to all these questions. I would argue they're disputable matters because that's the case. We don't wanna be cavalier and insensitive, and we also don't wanna be ruled by anxiety either. It's not always cut and dry, which is which. This, there wasn't a simple straightforward answer to the question of meat sacrificed to idols either. And there may not be straightforward answers always for how to gather together. But what matters, I think, is that we work through these issues together as a community, remembering that ultimate ethic of love, the ultimate Jesus-centered guidepost of treating one another as we would want to be treated, paying close attention to the particular needs of the most vulnerable among us. So it doesn't mean we will never relax our COVID protocols. I am confident as the weeks and months go by and public health recommendations change and people feel more at ease in public, many of us Perhaps not all, but many of us probably will take off our masks together. And at some point this year, we probably will move inside. Some of us may soon give consent to one another to share a hug, sit closer than six feet away. But it matters how we get to those places. We want to get there as a collective, making sure that all of us feel heard and seen and cared for as we do. So we're gonna keep having conversations we're gonna keep experimenting in this time of bounce. We're gonna beta test new ways of gathering, some of which will probably work and some of which probably won't. And we'll do all of that experimentation, all the dialogue, all the trial and error with the goal of creating better ways of gathering that more deeply embody our values perhaps than we've yet had. And all of it, I invite you to remember Haven, that we wanna practice acceptance, where we don't have agreement. We wanna prioritize access and inclusion. And we wanna celebrate that we have found acceptance and belonging with God. And it's our honor and joy to extend that same acceptance and belonging to one another. Amen. Amen.